0: If you return with me in your Bibles to Esther, chapter 1, we're going to start a new sermon series for the summer. Hopefully we'll finish it by the end of the summer. Um, But uh, we have finally replaced the sign out front. If you haven't seen it yet, it no longer says anything about Hebrews. It says Esther. Very excited. I'm all about signs lately, so look to the sign. Um, But if you would turn to Esther, chapter 1, we're going to give you a very unusual intro uh, this morning to a a very fascinating book, and I do hope that um, we will be encouraged by it. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when the King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Behuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done? to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king, the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say... King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and of Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it may not be repealed, "'that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, "'and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. "'So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, "'for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. "'This advice pleased the king and the princes, "'and the king did as Mamukin proposed.' He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Well, I'm glad I didn't hear any men saying amen this time. As normally the women are saying amen, anything you say about the women, but whatever. Let's. Uh, we should pray before we start this. Let's pray. Father, we, we do ask for your... Blessing upon the reading, the preaching of your word, we pray that as we hear your word, as we meditate upon its precepts, as we meditate upon this narrative, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, your great wisdom as it unfolds throughout Scripture. We pray, Father, as well, that we would see Christ and and how all of this eventually points to him. We we pray, Father, that this word, uh, your word would indeed be words of life to us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you are familiar with uh, Hans Christian Andersen's famous folktale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, but for those who are not, uh, sometimes it's helpful to give a refreshing uh, refresher of some sort. Um, uh, basically, the story is about two swindlers, two con artists, if you will, who arrive at a capital city, Uh, of a very vain emperor who is well known for spending lavishly on his own clothes, even at the state's expense. So uh, posing as master weavers, these two charlatans offer to supply the emperor with clothes that he has never seen before. Uh, Of course, the catch is that the clothes themselves are invisible to all those who are stupid and unsophisticated. And so, flattered by the idea that only the most refined members in his society would be able to appreciate his glory in that regard, uh, he quickly agrees to uh, employ them, and they set up their looms and immediately get to work. Well, as the days pass, a succession of officials want to see what's going on, and uh, even the emperor himself eventually comes to check on the progress of these two men, and of course, every time they look in the room, they see nothing at all, but they're afraid to admit that they see nothing, because then that would imply that they are the fools that uh, that can't see these clothes. So finally, after a week has passed, the weavers report uh, that the emperor's suit is now finished. And after pretending to dress him, and him standing there uh, thinking that they're dressing him, they then precede him in a procession around the city so that all those who are sophisticated can appreciate his royal attire. Well, unsurprisingly, the townsfolk are quite uncomfortable at first at this spectacle, uh, but they go along with the pretense because none of them want to be seen as fools themselves, and so they're all applauding him and, and telling him how great he looks in his, his new clothes. Until eventually, a child blurts out the emperor's not wearing any clothes. And of course all the people know that he's speaking the truth and, and realize that they've all been duped and that even the emperor himself is being duped, but because of the emperor's ego, he struts around like a peacock all the more, as if he is wearing the clothes after all, and that he's the only one who can see them. Well, in our passage this morning, the, the emperor that is uh, mentioned in this story, uh, he's referred to as Ahasuerus. He's actually one of four Ahasueruses that are mentioned in Scripture. In fact, it's a very common title that's given uh, to the emperors in Persia and even one in, in Babylon. Uh, but this one refers particularly to King Xerxes the Great, Xerxes the I, if you will. And this emperor is in a very similar position to the emperor in the folktale that we've just mentioned. Uh, Again, uh, he's not as wise as he comes across to be, but the only difference is he has no clue that he's not as wise as he thinks he is, and neither does his royal retinue. They all have the same problem. But nevertheless, the omniscient narrator who's telling us this story, could be Mordecai, we don't know for sure, uh, gives us uh, the big picture from the beginning and helps us to see sort of how ridiculous this scenario really is. It really is absurd. And As many of you already know, the book of Esther is a very unique book in the Bible. Uh, it's the only book that we know for sure does not mention God at any point. Uh, there are um, one or two other books that mention Him either in passing or uh, in a way that you would have to be looking for. it. But this one, clearly, He's not mentioned At all. Some people have tried over the years to uh, do some sort of numerology, and if you put God's name backwards and Yahweh spell it out different ways, then maybe in the Hebrew you can find it, but it's not meant to be there uh, on purpose. Uh, We also see there's no mention of prayer anywhere in the book, there's no mention of miracles, there's no mention of God's covenant, there's no mention of God's law, and there's no mention of the temple of God. This is on purpose. This is not an accident. This is not a secular book. It's meant to convey, in some sense, what we all have felt at one point or time and another. Where is God? Where is He in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this craziness that we're experiencing, especially in the midst of our trials and our temptations, especially when we see tragedy in our own land? Where is God? Is that not the question that's being asked again this week? Where is God? What's He doing? That's what the book of Esther is trying to help us to see. Like the book of Daniel, the events in the book of Esther take place entirely in a foreign land. Never any incident that takes place in Jerusalem or in the promised land. So God's people are outside of God's place, outside of God's blessing. Instead of living under the righteous rule of the son of David, the king of Israel, they're living under the whims of the pagan king in his fickle fury. And we're going to see this again and again. This this king, this Xerxes the Great, as he's known in the Greek, or Ahasuerus, as he's known in the Hebrew, he's not what he seems to be. But in reading just the first chapter of the book of Esther, not only do we not see any mention of God, strangely enough, it has a very unusual introduction, we also don't see any mention of God's people. Every other narrative in Scripture you have something of God, something of God's people, and you're sort of setting the scene showing this is what's happening between God and His people. But in the first chapter, it mentions neither one of those. Rather, it starts with this pagan king and all of his royal attendants and all of his royal advisors and all of his royal eunuchs, and, and, all of the, and it mentions all of their names, and they seem meaningless to us for the most part. It doesn't seem to be about God's people at all, but It is. But he's, again, setting the scene to help us to see what God is doing behind the scenes. But he starts out with showing us a picture of Xerxes himself. Uh, The first chapter, the main character appears to be Xerxes, surrounded again by his royal uh, people. But as always, it's important for us to see God is indeed the main character in the story. He is the protagonist, and we'll find out that Xerxes himself is one of his antagonists. Not the main one, but he's one of them, and he's easily uh, moved to work either for or against God's people at his own whim. In fact, one of the main themes that can be clearly traced in the book of Esther, and we'll see this throughout as we go through the book, is the theme that starts in the Garden of Eden when God promises that the seed of the woman will constantly be at enmity with the seed of the serpent, and that eventually the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Uh, and We're seeing this uh, again and again throughout the book of Esther. In fact, there are promises that are made all throughout the narrative prior to the time of Esther that are only fulfilled during the time of Esther. So We'll pay attention to those things as well. But before we can do that, before we can be introduced to God's people and to this grand theme of the animosity between these two, the narrator purposely wants to set the scene in such a way that we might be impressed by Xerxes. That we might think, wow, what a great guy. What an outstanding, powerful, wealthy, intimidating guy Ahasuerus really is as he sits on his royal throne in his opulent palace in the ancient city of Susa, which, by the way, just for your own trivial namesake, the word Susan comes from the city of Susa. It means lily. That's an ancient name. First we're told, though, then verse 1, we see something of his power. Verse 1, it says he reigns from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, that's seven provinces more than his dad reigned over. But what you need to know is that basically he's reigning over essentially parts of three different continents. He has the greatest empire the world has ever seen. There is nowhere you can go except a very small sliver of Greece in order to hide from him. Because only Greece up to this point has been able to defend its territory against him. Everyone else he has conquered. If you're trying to run away from the emperor... It's almost impossible. At another royal palace, in addition to the winter palace in Susa, uh, in Persepolis, archaeologists have found a stone on which Xerxes had these words written, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak many different languages, the king of all the earth. Clearly, the man thought highly of himself. Clearly he had great power. And you can imagine with a kingdom of that size, how many men he would have to employ even to lead his troops into battle. Herodotus, now I have to admit to you, I was a history major, ancient history. I love this stuff. If I bore you, I hate you. No. No, no. no it's um it's a very significant um. Facts that you can find in this latter portion of the Old Testament because now you can finally date things. You can finally know exactly what time period we're talking about. Prior to this, you always have to say, circa, circa, around this period of time. But you can actually uh, put together what the ancient secular historians say with what the Bible says, and it all just meshes so wonderfully well. But the Greek historian Herodotus estimated that Xerxes had over two and a half million men that would fight for him. That's a lot of men. A lot of men. You can see why he would need to hold such a great feast to entertain all of these people over a period of 180 days. Think of 180 day feast. That's a half a year. He's rotating these men to come and see his great wealth and come see his great power and to inspire them to fight for him. In in fact, Herodotus tells us that Xerxes' father, Darius the Great, had tried to fight against the Greeks back in 490 B.C., but he, he lost miserably. And it was known as the First Persian War. It's the only war that he lost. And now Xerxes wants to exonerate his father, to exonerate the Persian name, and to go and fight them once again. So three years into his reign, he is planning this big battle to finally conquer the Greeks. That's his, that's his point. And the, and the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that it's this third year into his reign where he throws this big feast. So it's, it's, it's pretty apparent that the purpose of the feast is to inspire these men to fight for him, to prove that he can reward them if they win. He wants them to conquer. In fact, Herodotus tells us as much Quoting Xerxes is saying this, For this cause I have now summoned you together, that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont and to lead my army through Europe to Hellas. Hellas is another word for Greece. That I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and what they have done to my father. Very clear intention. In fact, it's almost similar to the Bushes in their." understanding of the Persian Gulf and all that stuff. Again, one didn't win. The second one wants to win. Very similar situation here in reference to Xerxes and Darius. So the book of Esther begins with this elaborate feast. In fact, if you look at the book of Esther as a whole, it's one feast after another after another. You see some famine, you see some fasting, but for the most part, it's feasting. And all for the wrong reasons mostly. But he begins this Feast for 180 days showing forth this great wealth, his glory to, to just make them all in awe that they would fight for him. And so he puts on this grandiose feast and they, and they do, they, they marvel at all that he's accomplished and all that he has and all that he's done. And here again we see something of his wealth. If you look in verse 6 in the text, the author describes a multitude of things that sort of paint the picture for us. He describes these pristine white cotton curtains. Now, most of us wouldn't think too much of it can go to you know Target or, or one of these local stores and get white cotton curtains today. But back then, this was a pretty big deal. They had these long white cotton curtains bound with royal violet cords, and then majestic marble pillars all throughout holding up the ceiling, many couches made of gold and silver. Does anybody here have a couch of gold? Or silver in their home. In addition, the the mosaic tiles on the floor are made of marble, precious stones. Again, if you if you've been to any of these uh, places in 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 the the Near East, I mean, it's just it's amazing the type of artistry they put in their floors. You're walking on art, and if you can imagine the type of wealth that this king had, that they're walking all over. Many artistry, uh, m- many artists, the, the work of the artists themselves. And then finally, uh, he also describes the cups that they're drinking this wine from. And it says, No cup is similar to another. That every cup is designed by an artist himself. So again, if you can imagine how many thousands of people he is giving wine to, every single cup is unique. Again, what type of wealth would this man have to be able to do something like this? I don't know about you, but I didn't have an open bar at my wedding. Come from a good Southern Baptist culture. You didn't drink. You don't do that. I'm not condemning you if you did. But I can't imagine the tab that would come due for 180 days telling men to drink as much as they wanted. Can you imagine? He's painting a picture that this man's wealth will never run out. He can pretty much buy whatever he wants and even buy another country through paying off whoever he has to pay off to get whatever he wants. So we're, we're meant to be impressed. That's the point that the author's painting. He, he's trying to impress us with this grand wealth, this great power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the same time, there's already a hint at, at his megalomania in this first edict that we read. Of course, anyone who calls himself the great usually already struggles with megalomania. But in this particular case, we see uh, that he's telling them not only that they can drink whatever they want, but he makes a law telling them that they must drink whatever they want. Now, you can imagine that anyone who has to give an order when orders aren't needed, who makes laws when laws are not necessary, he's probably got a problem. He wants to micromanage every single aspect of their life. He wants to make a law for everything so that he can show that he has power over every person. In fact, the word Xerxes itself in the Persian literally means the ruler over all men. He has the right to rule over you and he will rule over you with a bunch of rules. That's his goal. Now, even if that means do what you want, that's my rule for you. Do what you want. Literally, that's what he's saying. at the same time, a mother gives this counsel in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verses 4 and 5, to her son, King Lemuel. She says this, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and pervert the rights of all those afflicted. Now we see very early on in this passage, as much as his wealth is, and as great as his glory is, and as much as his power is, he's not the wisest of men to ever have ruled over an empire. We see very early on, he's drinking uh, in excess along with all of his men. He's feasting before he's fighting, which is never the best scenario. And as a result, he starts to make some really bad decisions And uh, after talking many, many months about conquering all of his Greek adversaries, now he wants to bring before these men someone he's already conquered, his trophy wife, if you will. It's very clear from the passage that the king sees his wife not as a companion, but more something like a plaything, a toy, or even a sex object. Uh, Again, the ancient historian Herodotus tells us that Xerxes was a notorious womanizer, so this makes perfect sense. After his men are inebriated and heavily influenced by alcohol, he wants to bring before them his beautiful bride in order that they may gawk at her, basically, that they might be envious of him and see again how great his glory really is. Even though she's a gem, he doesn't do this for her sake, but for his own so in his merriment, he sends out seven eunuchs. And you'll notice throughout the book of Esther, uh, the number seven is being used in terms of this king's seemingly perfection and power, perfection and counsel, everything. He has the best of the best. And so he sends seven men to go retrieve his one wife, to tell her, come and, and wear your crown and show us your, your beauty. Uh, But of course we know that the eunuchs aren't able to convince her to come. She refuses. She flat out refuses his order, his command, his edict, right? Now we're not told why she does that, but we can guess as to her reasons it wouldn't be that hard. Again, uh, ancient Jewish commentators had suggested that uh, uh, what he meant was only come wearing your crown and nothing else, but the text doesn't really say that, so it'd be probably a jump to assume that. But, but rather, instead, uh, it probably has something to do with the impropriety of having numerous drunken men stare at and make very colorful commentary upon his covenanted bride. It would make sense to me. Um, now, we have to keep in mind, too, that ancient women back then, especially in that part of the world, wore a veil over their faces in public what he's asking her to do is something that only a prostitute or a concubine would do. So he really is treating his wife like she's a prostitute. And he's drunk. He's not thinking clearly, and he's making an edict in the midst of his drunkenness, which is never wise. Now, for those of you who have been married for many years, uh, you know what it's like at times to have unrealistic expectations. (laughs) You know what it's like to have miscommunication, and you know what it's like to have to work on that. Well, King Ahasuerus, he's the king. He doesn't have to work on that. He never actually has to talk to his wife. Instead, he gathers another group of men, seven men, the wisest in all the land, to try to determine what's wrong with his wife and how he can fix this. Again, the normal person would just say, well, maybe I should go talk to my wife. I'll be back. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes and and meets with these seven wisest of, of, of all men. Uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, the the classic feminist commenta- commentators uh, of scripture, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but there are different. There are there's sort of a you know there there's liberal commentators and there's conservative commentators and then there's feminist commentators. There's Marxist commentators. There's sort of uh, homosexual whatever commentators. There, there you can you can make comments all you want on the scripture from a wide variety of perspectives, but the the feminist commentators actually make Vashti the hero of the whole book of Esther. Even though she's only mentioned once in the first chapter and we never hear from her ever again, it's as if she is the hero, even more of a heroine than Esther herself and certainly more of a hero than God. It's about the fact that she's standing up for her rights. Now again, I... I don't blame her whatsoever for the decision that she made in rejecting the counsel of the king, not in the least. But we have to understand this is not about Vashti. This is really about setting us up to understand what type of king we're dealing with here before it gets into the darker days that Israel is about to experience. But it's how the king responds to this dilemma that baffles us. Instead of going to speak with his wife directly, He asked for these men to make a ruling, uh, to counsel him, to make an edict of some sort because they supposedly know the times in which they're in, right? In fact, that's something that's said of some of the Israelites um, in in the book of Chronicles, that they did know the times in which they were in, but these men clearly don't. So he asked these men, according to the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king. And so one outspoken counselor named Mamukan stands up and begins to give him this counsel. And essentially he says that Vashti has wronged not only the king, but has wronged all of the empire and all of the nations in the empire by rejecting his orders. And now, as a result, every woman in the kingdom is going to be looking with derision at her own husband because he has lost his power, if you will, so there has to be a way to regain that. And so he, he then gives the wackiest advice that I have ever seen that a wise man could give. He suggests that the, simp- the king simply make another edict decreeing that Vashti shall never come before him ever again, to marry another woman instead, and that all women should give honor to their husbands high and low alike, and that should be a new rule according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Well, the first part of the decree really doesn't seem all that punitive because he's basically saying what she has already said herself. You can't come to see me. Well she doesn't want to see him. So really that's showing his great power there, right? Uh and in fact uh it's 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 pointing out that his law is very similar to the law that he made in reference to the men and the drinking. Do whatever you want. Now he's telling his wife, Well you, you do whatever you want, but I'm in charge. <laughs> but do whatever you want, right? Showing, again, just the foolishness of his, his power and his wisdom. But then in addition to that, as far as the concern that they had that every woman in the kingdom would hear about this, well, they decided to write a letter so that every woman in the kingdom can hear about this. They can hear exactly what the king has done and what, how his wife has despised him. Uh, so again, that doesn't really make any sense at all. They could have you know, kept it under hush-hush, made an edict saying, well, don't spread this rumor out to anyone else, but no, instead, let's send it out to all the world. It's hard to believe the king would be amenable to this, but again, he's not the wisest king you'll find in Scripture. But it's the edict concerning the men being rulers over their own household that's the most laughable out of all. If you think about it, the king couldn't even get his own wife to submit to him. How in the world is he going to force every woman in the kingdom to submit to her husband? It's impossible. But again, it makes perfect sense, and this is the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it will not be revoked. So shall it be written. So shall it be done, right? This is truly a ridiculous law, and exactly what the author of the book of Esther wants us to see at this point. It's ridiculous. It's laughable. We're meant to laugh. If you haven't laughed yet, take the moment. That's that's meant to be the reaction. This is not meant to be taken seriously in that regard. And and the reason why is because he knows that we naturally are in awe of power. We're naturally in awe of wealth. And of all these grandiose things that the world has to offer us. And so he's purposely saying, now I'm going to debunk your view of the world. You think that this is so great. You think that this is so grand. You think that this is all so fearful. It's not. They're not as great as you think that they are. And so he's purposely sort of undermining that view of the world. In, in this particular situation, the king is strangely delighted by the counsel of Mamukin and his orders. He orders that these letters be sent out to all the royal provinces in every language that every man should be master in his own household. Now, again, can you imagine the king putting his royal seal to this letter? I mean, what an idiot. But then can you imagine how many dispatch writers would have to be sent out throughout his entire kingdom with the same letter that he has put his seal to? I mean, all day. And then they're sending it all throughout. So it said every provincial leader can then read this letter publicly to the town that everyone is required to be gathered to hear this news. And then, in addition to that, can you imagine all the people standing in Bewilderment going, what happened? And what? Okay, sure. Like every other law that he gives. It just doesn't make any sense at all. They're meant to see how foolish this really is. And we're meant to see how foolish it really is. Clearly it's an instance in which the emperor has no clothes. And now the people are all meant to know it. But do we live in a time that's that dissimilar to this? I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's the hard part. We, we, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in the last year or two <laughs> that have been so angry over the news that I'm like, just stop watching the news. Just stop listening to it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous what they come up with. It's ridiculous the laws that they pass. It's ridiculous what they think. That's really the type of world in which we live in today. It's it's to the point where rulers are continuing to make just absolutely nonsense in their laws. And it's often a child that has to point out the truth. I mean, it really is. I mean, when the rulers continue to say a woman is a man, a man is a woman, light is dark and dark is light. The child says, what? that's a boy. It's a boy. And then the law says, okay, well, we're going to throw the kid in jail because he didn't use the proper pronoun. That's where we're at today. I mean, but that's how ridiculous it is. Again, there's, there, there is some carryover. The, the, the nature of man doesn't change. Uh, the hard part about Memorial Day is we often think back at some point to a golden age, but was there ever really a golden age outside of the Garden of Eden? Uh, it's worse now, I grant to you. It's worse now, but there always have been these cycles of just absolute ridiculous laws that have been made. Think about it. Since I've been born, forty-nine years, there has been a law that says a child is not a child until it comes out of the womb. And any normal person say, "What? That makes no sense. That's stupid. That's ridiculous." But that's the world in which we live. Now I can go back and say many things prior to that. 50 years prior to that, there's something that has passed. And and all of us are like, what? How is that even possible? So many laws in our, our land are made by men who have no fear of God. No understanding of God's ways. And therefore no wisdom. And that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. That God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. That's the promise that's what we're going to see in the book of Esther. But why exactly is this first chapter recorded for us in God's holy word? What's the author seeking to teach us? More than anything, we're meant to see that the emperor has no clothes. That Xerxes the Great is not all that great. (laughs) That his wise men are not all that wise. That his His uh, vast army is not all that terrifying. So stop feeling so demoralized. Stop getting so bitter and angry over all that is happening in the world around you. Stop being afraid. God still sits on His throne. God still is controlling all of these things behind the scenes. Even though it seems that He's absent from the story, He is not. He is the main character. He doesn't forget. At times, the Lord Himself... Even laughs in scorn at the rulers of this world who gather together in council against him and against his anointed one. And I do think that's what Esther is calling us to do to laugh with ridiculous scorn at those who continue to try to say that Christianity is ridiculous and that Christ is a sham. Now, it's interesting because the, the book of Esther itself is written after this battle takes place, right? So, in other words, the author already knows the outcome of this grand battle that they're planning. So, this 180-day feast that he's been setting, not only does the author know, but the original audience also knew. The problem is, since we aren't as historically awesome as they were, we don't know the outcome. Well, the outcome is this. Um, there was a great battle at Salamis. It's a naval battle that basically the Persians were obliterated by the Greeks. After, now some of you probably would know this more, if you remember uh, King Leonidas of Sparta, you remember the 300 men who basically get in the middle of the pass and are able to stop an entire Persian army with just 300 soldiers. Because of that event, Later, this naval battle, completely, they are just humiliated in every possible way. So again, we see his great wealth, we see his great wisdom, we see his great power and his military strength, and then they're humiliated by the Greeks. Not all that different from the Babylonians being humiliated by the Persians just a few years prior. And again, we feel so intimidated by those who hold you know, these, these purse strings and those who hold the power in the land. But again, the audience knows this story and is laughing even more than we are because like, ha, they're planning for this great battle. They're going to lose miserably. And that's what we're meant to see. They're not as fearful as we think they are. So the author's pointing out how the decrees of these earthly kings are often being overturned and that even a single woman can entirely disrupt the kingdom of men. <laughs> I knew I was going to get men amen for now. On. <laughs> on numerous occasions we hear in the Old Testament, uh, at least four times I think it says, the law of the Medes and the Persians will never be revoked. And yet it's revoked again and again and again. And the men who make these stupid laws are demoralized because they can't quite seem to make them stand. And I tell you, that reminds me of Roe versus Wade. I can't tell you how many times I have heard someone say on the news, This is established law, it will always be in our land. Bull. It. It can be overturned. It will be overturned. It may not be overturned at the next decision, but it will be overturned. And I, I know it will be because God sits on his throne. You can't allow murder just to continue to exist again and again and again. And, and we be so full. I do think it's the younger generations that have gotten wiser than even the older ones and said, enough's enough. We're tired of this. A child is a child. It's going to be overturned. So similarly, the book of Esther reminds us that we simply have to wait upon God's good providence to work out all these things. We get so frustrated, we get so bitter, we get so fearful at what tomorrow might hold. But all the time, God is working the details out and we don't see it. It's only when we look in the rearview mirror and we're like, oh, yes, he was doing this, he was doing that, and I had no idea. Think of it. The main antagonist in this story has not yet even been mentioned. He's not done a thing. And yet God is already paving a way for the Savior who's going to get Israel out of that mess. Think of it. What's happening in this first chapter is God moves the heart of this foolish king to make a very foolish edict. His wife rejects that command. He then makes another command to get rid of her Three years pass while he's gone away fighting his battles. He comes back and goes, oh, did I make that rule that she couldn't come back? Literally, that's what it says in the Scripture. And He says, well, I guess I have to go find another queen. And it just so happens to be the one who's going to save Israel from being destroyed. But all of these details are being worked out in the first chapter before we even know that that's what God is doing. You see. God is not absent in this story. He's not absent in our story. He's working out all these details. We just don't know it. But that's the truth. And we're meant to see that. So he's setting us up with that, even from the first chapter. Yes, we have a crazy king who's got all this power, all this wealth, all of this glory, supposedly, and God is de-glorifying him before our very eyes. So we can see the truth. Oftentimes, by contrast, as I mentioned last week, the word teaches us to long for the one true king when we see such a bad king like Xerxes. Right? Psalm 45 is meant to point us to the faithful and true king who loves his bride, not like this crazy king who treats her like a, an object of flesh alone. Unlike the decree of Xerxes, his decrees are always trustworthy, always upheld, always fulfilled. He's not fickle and furious like Ahasuerus, he's loving and just and kind He doesn't treat his bride like a prostitute. Sanctifies her by the washing of water with the Word. Loves her in that way. The one thing that Xerxes and Christ have in common is the fact that they both throw a feast. (laughs) A great feast for many, many, many people. Of course, uh, Jesus waits until after the battle is done before he throws his feast. (laughs) Unlike this foolish king who throws it too early. Both kings want to put their bride on full display. One does it so he can gain just glory for himself. He has no desire to do any good for his wife. Clearly, Christ has a different intention. He wants to honor his bride. He wants to show off her grace and her beauty, her purity. Because he's laid down his life for her. Taken the curse upon Himself for her, that she might be blessed, that she might be glorified with Him. And so when Christ calls His bride, she cannot refuse. Because she knows how much He loves her. She'll never be banished from His kingdom, because He has already won her place there. Indeed, on the final day, we'll see uh, the true King, in all of His glory, and all of His beauty, and all of His wonder, The Jews initially tried to stop Pilate, if you remember, from putting at the top of the cross the placard that says this is the king of the Jews and it's written in three different languages, including Greek, which is what this one is written in. But when Christ comes in the fullness of His glory, every knee bows, every tongue confesses, every language, every tongue on earth will agree. King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the rightful king. He's greater than Xerxes the Great, greater than Darius the Great, greater than Cyrus the Great, greater than Alexander the Great, greater than anyone else who has ever claimed a title to greatness. Jesus is greater. His authority is all in heaven and on earth. It's all His. He has won it all. Through His love, through His sacrifice, through his victory over the grave and over death. And we know this is true. We know this is coming, because when God gives a decree, it can never be revoked. And this decree was given a long time ago. So regardless of how you feel today, regardless of what you're afraid of, from the latest laws that have been passed in our lands, there is a law that's greater than any of those, and his law will stand. And He's proven that once and for all through His Son, Jesus. He's coming back. He will take His rightful throne, and He will reign. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would help us to hold on to the truths of Your Word, to believe the promises of God, to wait upon the Lord. In the midst of uh, hard and difficult times, even as we think of uh, tragedies that have happened in our own land this week, Lord, I am amazed that we don't go just from one tragedy to another to another every day that we live. You have been merciful to us, even though we have experienced much loss this side of Eden. But Lord, we pray that instead of making us bitter and fearful and... And vexed in so many ways, Lord, we pray that you would help us to long for the kingdom to come. Long to be removed from this place of misery, this place of death, into the presence of our king in his palace. Lord, you've prepared a place for us. We long for your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray.